we know AI is not ready for prime time uh, in all of those different uh, areas. And so, you know, while we definitely see it as an additive capability. Hello, and welcome to HIMSCast. I'm Susan Morris, Executive Editor of Healthcare Finance News. We're here today with Yaw Thelen, who is Vice President of Products and Solutions for Walters Kluwer Health Clinical Effectiveness Team. Welcome, Yaw. Thank you, Susan. Appreciate you having me. Uh, great to have you here. I'm wondering if you can first tell us about yourself and what you do. Yeah, sure. Um, let me start just at a high level with Walters Clor Health. Um, so we really are the global leader uh, for content and expert solutions within the healthcare industry. Um, and uh, you know, as you noted, uh, I'm a part of our clinical effectiveness division, which is one of two big divisions within uh, our healthcare practice. Um, you know, at its core, our mission is to improve uh, health and outcomes. So, pretty powerful, but also basic uh, mission. Um, and we do that uh, by providing clinical decision support resources. Um, primarily for professionals, um, but uh, for patients and, and members as well. Um, you asked a bit about my role uh, and what I do uh, on a you know day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so I really uh, have you know the joy and privilege of leading our product organization and our product function. Um, and if you think about the different product suites that we have, uh, you know, we've got products that provide evidence-based best practice to physicians. Uh, we've got uh, drug databases, so the types of things that power, you know, the clinical screening that occurs within an electronic medical record. Um, we've got patient engagement solutions. And, uh, you know, basically my job uh, is to make sure that those products and anything new that we launch uh, creates value uh, for our end customers. Um, so we really do serve a, a you know, a, a multitude of healthcare industry players, uh, provider organizations, so hospitals and health systems, uh, payer organizations, you know, health insurance plans, uh, pharmacies, uh, pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs. Um, and I think if you really you know, break down what I do on a day in and, and day out basis. It's, you know, across the, that ecosystem of players, uh, trying to figure out what are the biggest problems and pain points, uh, that they're trying to solve. Uh, and then thinking about how our different assets and capabilities can, you know, uh, come together to get those organizations, uh, to, to an outcome. So that's, it's kind of the crux of what I do. <laughs> it, um, it sounds like you do a lot. Um, <laughs> and you're working with many more players than I thought I was going to ask you providers, payers, but it goes beyond that. You talked about pain points. I've always heard one of the pain points is providers and payers not talking to one another. Are you involved in those communications? Because what you're talking about is value-based care. And for value-based care, my understanding is everybody has to work together. Yeah, it, a couple of really excellent uh, points. So uh, we do have a, a huge role to play in value-based care um, and in the types of innovation that it's going to take for value-based care programs to be successful. Um, 
You're also correct. We are traditionally known uh, for the work that we do with providers. Um, we really uh, serve providers across the globe. If you looked at, uh, look at our headline product, which is up to date, that's our evidence-based uh, clinical practice product. That's actually accessed by physicians about 1,200 times per minute um, as they're making uh, treatment uh, decisions. Uh, so, it, you know, it's not uncommon for us to be thought of uh, from a provider perspective. Um, and then, uh, you know, you're spot on. Um, there's a huge opportunity and it's a place that we're doing uh, just a ton of, uh, I would say, both work and innovation around how do you bridge the payer and provider conversation. Um, and, you know, obviously that's kind of a critical function uh, when you're talking about value-based care programs, you know, whether you're talking about aligning incentives or whether you're talking about, you know, making sure that everybody is operating from the same kind of clinical protocol and, and playbook. Um, but we really do feel like the types of evidence-based practice content that we have uh, the types of provider engagement that we have with our solutions, um, and then kind of the much more holistic, um, you know, approach that we're able to offer, whether that's with patient or member engagement, um, or just in terms of helping to bridge those payer and provider conversations um, that, you know, that's going to be a huge part of our future and, and how we support the industry. I want to ask you more about that and the future of value-based care, but I have to get back to what you said about the clinical decision support how many clicks did you say? Uh, up to date is accessed 1,200 times per minute. Um, and so think of that as actually being deeper than a click. Um, that's people coming in, uh, you know, basically looking for the evidence-based guidance, uh, you know, trying to either confirm a decision that they've already made um, or, you know, think of physicians, nurses, et cetera. They've got questions uh, about uh, the, you know, the, clinical treatment that they're going to provide. Um, and up-to-date is the go-to knowledge information source uh, for how they get those questions answered. That's amazing. Is it, um, uh, maybe this is too simple the way I'm putting it, so please clear it up for me, y'all, but is it something as though everybody, you know, I keep hearing that doctors cannot keep up with all the new medical advances. You know, if they read every day for a year, they still wouldn't have caught up with it. Is that basically clinical decision support, taking all that information and putting it into your, pro is, is it a product? Is that the correct way to put it? And then sort of giving them the best practice of which one works? Yeah, it, it, you absolutely nailed it. So I can tell you spent a lot of time <laughs> within, within the industry. Um, so, you know, that's the gist of it, right? Avalanche of information, um, it is you know, probably just physically impossible for at this point for any given human, uh, you know, physicians in particular to stay up to date on all the latest research. Um, and so we have a team of over 7,000 physician editors, uh, you know, think of the best of the best, the top specialists, um, you know, in their domain. Uh, they comb through and synthesize uh, all of that evidence-based research and present it in a very unified way so that when clinicians have a question or they need to verify something, it's right at their fingertips. Um, and if I had to just, you know, take it one level deeper, right, um, it, you know, a lot of times the, the evidence isn't clear, 
right? So it's not just that you have to synthesize everything that's being published, um, but what our team of editors really shines at, because they are the best of the best, uh, you know, kind of physicians in their specialty, is they're able to sift through what are the competing sources of evidence um, and what should the recommendation actually be in the cases where the evidence isn't super clear uh, just by, you know, reading through the literature. Is AI involved? Are we talking about all human touch here? Uh, great question. So, uh, you know, AI is, you know, probably the biggest conversation point that's taking place right now. Um, when you think of our editorial curation and process, um, that is all humans. Uh, these are, uh, you know, as I said, the, you know, the best specialists, um, you know, who have trained and practiced for decades that really do, um, you know, synthesize the research. Um, you know, we do believe that AI has a role in making their processes, uh, you know, simpler and easier. Um, and we're certainly doing AI experiments as, you know, probably the world uh, is right Everybody now. Everybody is. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do want to um, be very cautious in this, right? Um, I think, you know, a lot of the gaps in AI, right? So being able to verify what is true versus false. Um, or being able to, uh, you know, sift through kind of important points of nuance, you know, particularly in something as complicated as, as um, medicine, um, where you do get into decisions that are, uh, you know, life and death in nature. Um, we know AI is not ready for prime time uh, in all of those different uh, areas. And so, you know, while we definitely see it as an additive capability, uh, it, you know, it really is uh, the, the clinicians uh, and, you know, the rigor uh, that they have uh, that, that makes our products unique and special and, uh, uh, and incredibly uh, valued. So we'll come back in a year and talk, maybe. We'll see how that's changed, perhaps. <laughs> Things are I, happening so fast, I'd, maybe not even a year, but... I, I, you know, I, I think... Um, we could probably check in every couple of months <laughs> in the face of progress. Um, and again, you know, AI, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of promise in those capabilities. Um, you know, certainly one of the things that we're seeing is that for more administrative decisions, they're being adopted, um, uh, you know, and experimented with quite extensively. Um, and then, as I said, you know, we have some experiments uh, going as well as to how they can, you know, inform and transform our products, um, but with the right guardrails in, in place. Yes. And we're, yes, we've been hearing a lot about that, especially since Sims 23 in Chicago this past April. Um, I want to move on to value-based care in the time we have left. Um, I've been, I don't know, how, how long have you been with uh, Walter Sklor? Um, so I've been with Walters Clore about two and a half years. Um, so I don't know if I'm technically allowed to say I'm new, but I'm uh, you know, <laughs> new-ish. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, it's interesting. Uh, I've been in healthcare my entire uh, you know twenty plus year career, um, and I know we're about to talk about value based care. Um, I still remember exactly where I was, um, you know, when the uh, Campbell Care Affordable Care Act passed. <laughs> um, and, um, and actually at the time I was doing consulting work, uh, around, uh, you know, building, uh, some of the first, uh, clinically integrated, uh, physician networks and accountable care organizations. So 
Um, value-based care has a very kind of near and dear uh, place in my heart, uh, if you will. Well, you've been in this much longer than I have. I, I started with HIMSS in 2015, and I've been hearing about value-based care since then. I'm sure you've been hearing about value-based care over the past 20 years. And I'd like to ask, has it advanced? We keep hearing about it. I heard during COVID that if you were in fee-for-service, you weren't getting paid. So that was going to spur providers into more value-based care so they could at least get some money in if another pandemic hit or continued on. What is the status of value-based care from your bird's eye view that you have there? Yeah, no, I, uh, I'll chuckle a little bit because I think it's the million-dollar question. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you know, the too slow, too fast, uh, you know, just the right amount. Um, it, you know, uh, candidly, um, we've seen some pretty big accelerations uh, in value-based care. Um, you know, I think we we probably agree with the industry perspective uh, that it's moving a little bit slower than you know maybe people had hoped or envisioned, um, and we certainly think uh, you know that it's moving you know probably differently uh, uh, than folks had imagined. But um, absolutely, see key pockets of value-based care uh, acceleration. You know, there's a couple. You know, key, key reports and, and things that we pay attention to. Um, if you look at some of the research out of McKinsey, uh, they're uh, basically projecting a 15% uh, you know, annual value-based care growth rate. Um, if you look at some of the statements uh, from CMS's innovation arm, you know, they talk about you know, the majority of Medicare and Medicaid folks being in some sort of uh, value-based arrangement by the year 2030, which amazingly is uh, not too far off at, right at, yes. at this point. Um, and, um, it, you know, I, I think, uh, so we definitely think the the trend is moving. Um, I think when you break it down into a little bit more micro pockets, you see some interesting, um, uh, you know, sub-trends as well, right? So, if you define value-based care as organizations that are participating in some sort of, you know, upside-only agreements, I think the numbers are actually pretty compelling uh, in terms of, you know, what's the number of providers that are participating in some sort of capacity, um, you know, versus it looks a little bit different if you're thinking about, uh, you know, those that are truly taking on downside risk. Um, and then maybe just add one more nuance, uh, and then you can ask me to clarify anything you like. Um, you, you know, uh, certainly uh, different perspective if you're looking uh, through the lens of providers than if you're looking through the lens of, of payer organizations, right? So a lot of times we tend to talk about value-based care in terms of provider adoption and you know what percentage of provider business you know flows through these type of arrangements, but it's also pretty notable. Uh, on the payer side, the number of physician practices that have started to be, you know, bought up and organized into payer organizations, and the primary, you know, hypothesis around a lot of those investments really is around, uh, you know, value-based care synergies. Um, and if you look at the type of practices that they tend to buy, uh, they tend to be value-based care practices uh, as well. So, I, I know at a high level. Um, you know, that's probably a story of acceleration, but I do think, you know, depending on which pocket you're talking about, it's um, it's a little bit different. Well, I want to do a follow-up question with the physician practices because 
I get, um, well, I hear not, I guess they are complaints that doctors spend an awful lot of time on the phone and doing things that they're not getting paid for. And they want to spend time with patients. Does value-based care allow them to finally get paid for all these extra things they're doing, not only in the office, but at home at night, to finally, you know, be able to do this stuff? Yeah, I'll offer maybe um, a little bit more of my personal perspective, um, which which is probably both like yes and no. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, on the yes side, I mean, if you really think about the crux of value-based care, it's about aligning incentives. Um, And I think, you know, when you get into strong value-based care systems, um, you know, what you see is, uh, you know, the incentive structures really support the type of work that physicians need to do to drive the best outcome uh, for their patients. Um, And then there's probably something we don't talk uh, enough about as well. Um, Those value-based care models also tend to employ more of a care team approach to how care is provided. So there's probably also some deleveraging of the physician um, uh, or, you know, the MD, if you will, and having other members of the care team take on some of those responsibilities. Um, you know, so I would say, you know, yes, in that dimension, um, you know, the no has a, a you know, maybe a cus- couple asterisks, uh, against it, you know, um, you know, one is, um, you know, for any given physician practice, they're probably still not fully practicing in a hundred percent, you know, value-based, you know, modality. So what you actually tend to see is physicians that have to live in both worlds. Um, you know, they've got a panel of patients that are in, you know, the value-based care structures, and they've got a panel of patients that are, you know, in a more traditional fee-for-service structure. Um, and I think, you know, just living in those, uh, you know, kind of dual, uh, structures and realities we hear a ton from our customers is a challenge, and that's the type of thing that can actually increase, you know, workload and and late nights, uh, if you will. Um, and then obviously there are you know kind of key friction points in the fee for service system, right? So, you know, trying to secure prior authorizations and some of those things that align back to you know payer provider alignment, as we discussed at the start, um, you know. those are still challenges to be solved. And and we feel like we have a role to play in solving uh, those challenges, even within a fee-for-service structure. We think, you know, clinical decision support can be a key enabler of better communication between, uh, you know, payers and providers. But uh, I'd be remiss uh, if I, you know, indicated that, um, you know, that the trend is where we need it to be right now. Well, that's a great segue into my... um next and last question because unfortunately we're out of time and it's sort of double double question for you where do you see the future of value-based care i don't know pick your own timeline five years and what will it take for hospitals to take on downside risk yeah uh, i'm an optimist by nature um i think the future of value-based care is actually pretty promising um you know i I think you're going to continue to see progress, you know, probably at the more micro level. Um, And, you know, I think the real important trend we should look for is how many organizations, uh, you know, move further towards downside uh, risk. Um, Because I think that's the place where, um, you know, it becomes harder to execute from a value-based care perspective, but uh, the, you know, the benefits um, I think are um, compelling. 
in terms of uh, capabilities and what it's going to take to be successful, that's something that we spend a ton of time on. Um, I've probably hit on some of the themes, but I'll, I'll try and you know maybe crystallize them a little bit. Um, you know, we really feel like it's critical uh, you know to figure out systems and you know keep in mind I think through the lens of clinical decision support. So what are the clinical decision support systems that support care teams uh, in terms of providing uh, value-based care and operating value-based systems? Uh, we think that's a huge part of the future. Um, we feel like we're going to continue to need to help organizations manage the avalanche of information uh, that's coming at them, uh, whether that's evidence-based practice or a lot of the different uh, analytics uh, and other capabilities that it takes to successfully manage a value-based care program. Um, and then maybe the, the third piece is ultimately, you know, we do see value-based care, you know, whether you're looking through the payer or the provider lens as you know, more of a transformational uh, industry shift. Right? This is not as simple as, you know, tweaking a business model. This is really kind of redoing uh, your business model and approach to care. Um, and, you know, transformation is hard, right? It requires new capabilities, new skill sets, you know, new approaches to clinical decision support. Um, and so we're putting a, a lot of uh, energy into trying to solve those pain points. Y'all, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on HIMSCast. No, I really appreciate uh, the, the conversation and, and great questions. So uh, thank you for having me, Susan, as well.